You are now listening to the Motivational Jumpstart. Motivational Jumpstart. Motivational Jumpstart. Alright, good afternoon, incredible people. It's your favorite motivator from afar, Mike Mallory, with the Motivational Jumpstart on WHUS2. I am so, so, so excited right now for this special edition of the Motivational Jumpstart. Uh, because I'm, in, I'm, I'm joined online, and I'm in studio with some also re- re- remarkable guests, but I'm joined online with an incredible, incredible just individual who I, I just literally was thrown on his work uh, a, a few weeks ago, and I have literally, literally, literally have been on fire. And and on an extension to kind of give a little bit of context of, 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 of this special edition, we're talking about sports, we're talking about exploitation, we're talking about just, you know, a lot of things that are happening uh, uh, from, from, from the NCAA, but also on just major, major universities. I mean, from, from a lot of these athletes are giving their blood, their sweat, their tears, all of these different things, you know, to, to, to impact, you know, a, a university's bottom line. And the bottom line we're talking about is the profitability. And, you know, and, and, and one of my great, great, um, my, my, my advisor, uh, my advisor, my Ph.D. advisor, you know, sport management, Dr. Joseph Cooper, who's in studio right now. You know, I went into his office one day and I was like, you know what, Dr. Cooper, I'm, I'm just upset. Right. I'm seeing all of these athletes, you know, on campus and across the country who are giving all of their energy, all of this sweat. And I'm just seeing that the. The, the, the NCAA and, and, and a lot of these these bowl games, they're making millions and billions of dollars off these athletes. And I just feel like something, you know, is just morally wrong with this. And without the without even blinking, my, my advisor just goes to his computer, uh, go, goes to uh, uh, the corner of his desk and, and, and smacks down right in front of me this article. Uh, excuses, not reasons. Uh, that was written by you know a special guest calling in from from the West Coast, Mr. Andy Swartz. So, uh, Mr. Andy Swartz, are you are, are are you on the phone? I am, and I, there's no way I can live up to that introduction. Thank you. <laughs> No, absolutely, and, and and just to the listeners out there, I, I told you, you know, because there's because there's a lot of you, and I'm not going to say your naysayers, your haters, but you are really just misinformed. You, you you're misinformed on a, a, a lot of the things that that are happening, and and I told you all to tune in just so you can be the judge for yourself. For one, one, once we ask Mr. Swartz, just a couple of questions about his article, but then also just where his stance is, you know, as, as it relates to, you know. Um, you know, uh, 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 athletics and, and exploitation and just his work as a leading, you know, economist in the world. So uh, without further ado, Mr. Swartz, uh, one thing that we'd like to do, um, and, and and like I mentioned to you, we're going to have Dr. Joseph Cooper and, and my grad colleague, uh, Charlie McCauley, just ask some questions as it relates to some, some of the things that we've discussed many of times since me reading your article, uh, Excuses, Not Reasons, 13 Myths About Not Paying College Athletes. Uh, but one thing we like to do, if you could just introduce yourself to the listeners and tell them just a little bit about you, about about yourself, what you do, and then we're going to dive in from there, sir. Sure. So my name is Andy Schwartz. Um, I grew up in uh, Massachusetts, actually, so close to you. Um, and I'm on the West Coast now. I'm an antitrust economist. I work almost entirely in the law. Lawyers hire me and my firm to do um, antitrust analysis and antitrust cases, and one of the spots that turns out to have a decent amount of antitrust law is sports, because whenever you have more than one company coming together to form a league or more than one school forming together to form a conference or a, an association, um, you have the potential to run into antitrust problems. And about 15 years ago, a colleague asked me if I wanted to help on a paper about college sports. Until that point, my sort of my economics and my 
my college sports fandom had been completely separate, and ever since then they've pretty much been intertwined. It was impossible for me to unsee what I saw once I once I realized how, um, you know, we live in this market economy. There, we generally just, uh, tout how the ability of everyone to to earn what they're worth in a market, and then we have this one spot, and it just happens to be a spot that's uh, young and uh, darker skin than the rest of, of most markets, and boom, we suddenly say, no, 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 we can't have that here. And so since then, that's sort of been my, uh, my passion. Interesting. So, so what was the framework? So, so, so the article that I mentioned, you know, uh, uh, 13 myths uh, uh, about not paying college athletes, excuses, not reason. What, what was the premise? I mean, so you, you got with one of your good colleagues, and, you know, you, 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 what, what was the, the, the first level of just uh, being intrigued with this whole area? And then what was the framework for, for, for you know, what you wrote in that article? So the paper you're talking about I wrote in 2011, mm-hmm. and it was really my second dive into things. The first one I wrote was in 2000 with my colleague Dan Rasher, uh, mm-hmm. who has since gone on to become be an, be an expert witness against the NCA in a couple of cases. In that paper, we had this very clear vision that we wanted to look at the NCAA through the same lens that we we had looked through the looked at the NFL in a, in a case and found that what the NFL does fits what the law calls pro-competitive, and then to turn it on its head and show that those exact same things that make the NFL pro-competitive don't make the NCAA pro-competitive. The article you're talking about I wrote um, a a decade later uh, when I was walking to lunch and this woman that I knew from my building said, what do you do? And and no one wants to talk about, like, battery price fixing. So I mentioned, (laughs) oh, I do a little bit of sports sports stuff too and she asked me and I said well one of the things that I'm really passionate about is is showing the world why it would make sense for college athletes to get paid and she said but they can't they're amateurs and it just struck me as such a circular statement that um, I decided I wanted to basically write down every stupid is maybe mean every uh, illogical thing that someone had said to me about the topic over the last decade uh, when I brought it up and try to harness it into a, like, here, the next time your friend says something illogical, show them this. What's funny is I just just literally this morning submitted a paper to the Antitrust Bulletin where I talk about some behavioral economics, and behavioral economics is is a bit new. It's not that new anymore, but it it, it talks about the the gaps in our rationality. It talks about the spot where no matter how much we try, um, our logic fails us, and one of the teachings of that is, is that once a bad idea gets planted in your head, it is really hard to knock it out with facts. So, so I may have been barking up the wrong tree, but we'll see. Wow, wow, wow. So to those out there who's just like, okay, Mr. Swartz, okay, I get it. I'm, I'm tuning in to listen to this. These athletes are going to some incredible universities. They're on scholarship or some type of a scholarship. They need to be grateful because we're all out here paying, you know, money for school. They need to be grateful. They don't want the scholarship. They need to just sit home and do something else with their life. You know, so so we'll, we'll start it there. What would you say to just individuals who don't understand just the real, and we're talking about the power conferences, you know, Division One. you know, what would you say to just individuals who are not, or just skeptical with the idea that they're at their students just like I'm a student. I'm 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 a psychology major. I'm in engineering. So what if they play for you know this top this top program? Get over it. I guess what I would say is you know I think that's perfectly fine, except that I don't see why their school should be allowed to collude with other schools 
to give less than they would normally give. And it's a very markety antitrust answer, but like I'm not a person who thinks that there should be some minimum pay in college sports, that everyone should get at least X. It, my approach is all, if your school wants to say, here's a scholarship, that's all that you're worth, great. If you want to say yes, say yes. But the thing is, is that in a market where you have elite talent and that it's scarce, uh, and there's less talent than there's demand for the talent, the price will get bid up. And so every other athlete, sorry, every other student who's not an athlete who's out there and saying, well, I only got a $5,000 grant or I didn't get any financial aid or whatever they're saying, nobody stepped in and, and stopped the school from giving them every penny they were worth. Um, in essence, what they're saying is they wish they were worth more. Um, but they can't be, they aren't worth more, so they're saying, so therefore other people should take less. I suspect the day that they get out of college, their, their attitude is going to change completely. And if someone says, well, we would pay you more, but other people are making less, so sorry, we're all going to, you know, we're going to pay everybody in this company the same amount, they'll be like, well, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go get a better job where they'll pay me more. And, and the difference in college sports is that if UConn wants to, to spend a certain amount of money, the other schools in the NCAA don't have a problem when they do that with a the coach. They don't have a problem when they do it with the athletic director. They don't have the problem when they do it for a music student or a physicist, but when it's an athlete, they say, no, 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 we're going to fix the price, and it can't be any more than this. If athletes aren't worth any more than that, you don't need to fix the price. <laughs> the only reason, reason that they have it is because they know that in a free market the price would go up. Right, right, and, and, and I think the unfortunate nature of that, and, and, and I emailed you this, and I'm telling you, you know, once I read the article, just the words that I'm, I'm, I, I just believe are so profound, just collude, collusion, you know, and just seeing that this has been, this was like a well thought out mastermind type of plan. Like for, the, for, the, for me, it just grinds my gears just knowing that, you know, one, one thing that you said brilliantly in your article, if, if, a lot of these, 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 you know, big universities are not making money. Why are people fighting to to to, to switch conferences? Why 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 are a lot of these these you know different uh, institutions you know uh, uh, fighting for 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 TV ratings or all of these different things? If if there's really no money being made here, so it's just I guess for me it's just how how is this this crafted mastermind and then all of these individuals, board of trustees, or individuals at the table said, you know what? In this area, this makes perfect sense. We're all going to be on the same agenda. And guess what? We have a hundred different reasons to socialize and convince other people that, nope, these are just athletes in a free market. Maybe they might be worth more, but if they come into our institution, this is the price. Take it or leave it. Yeah, I mean, so there's a, there's a, um, I had the, the advantage because I work on some of these cases that I get to read some documents and sometimes they become public. So, um, maybe I'll send you, and then you can post it somewhere if you have a website for your show afterwards. There's a great document of the arguments that were made in 1975 about why college athletes, who did, up to that point, had gotten something called laundry money. It was $15 a month of expense money. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's all sorts of funny things baked into that laundry money. Well, of course, a, a guy in college wouldn't be doing his own laundry. He'd have to pay some woman to do it. But... Um, but leaving that aside, and then uh, uh, w one day they decided, you know what, we aren't making enough money, um, so we're going to get rid of the laundry money. And, and it, in, in theory, the principle behind the reason why schools can collude to fix the price that they give to athletes is because it's amateurism and there's some magical 
property to amateurs, and if you get more than that, then you stop loving the game somehow, and no one will attend, and a whole bunch of horrible things will happen. But they didn't say, oh, we realize now that by giving you $15 a month, we were actually paying you a salary, and that makes you not an amateur. They said, no, we just can't afford it. We don't want to do it anymore, so let's all agree to pay less. And they did. And, you know, that would be... It wouldn't be criminal price fixing, but it would be as severe a civil uh, vi- violation of the civil pr- price fixing rules as you could get in any other industry. And yet, nobody even thought it was weird. They they did it in, in open, like they have the, the. I can show you. I'll send you the notes of them discussing it and them saying, you know what, the problem with this is, is that we're not taking enough away. Maybe we should take away all scholarships. Um, so it is. It is blatant. It is out there, and it is. Um, you know, there's so much baked into it because you'll 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 see. I think it was Notre Dame actually. Notre Dame is saying things like, "Everybody knows that these guys are worth more than their scholarship. So how are we going to get away with this?" And people saying like, "Well, you know, times are tough. Times are tough all over, and we need to cut what what the athletes get." And and no one even thinks to say, "Let's cut what the coaches get." Now, eventually, they got around to that too. In the 1990s, they tried to cut. They they tried to cut um, what coaches could make they started with the lowest paid coaches the the assistant coaches the the in basketball they called them the restricted earnings coach which again it's like you couldn't be more blatant that we're going to we're going to price fix their pay the coaches though were smart and they hired lawyers and they took them to court and the court said i think they said in a twinkling of an eye we can tell that this is anti-competitive because it denies it denies the coaches the fruits of their labors, and it um, it was banned. And so ever since then, coaches' pay is unrestricted. Players' pay is not. And since coaches are, the, are one of the best ways to get players, as the value of players goes up and goes up and goes up, the coach, you, you see coaching pay reflecting that because coaches become a, a tool for attracting talent, and the money sticks to them. Right. Well, but so for me, that just is just so crazy to me because literally, you know, I was reading an article the other day about um, about Nick Saban. Right. And just his his talent fee within his contract is like seven million dollars. And it's, it's, it's just a mere fact that y- you wouldn't be as legendary as it as you are if it wasn't for the athletes, you know, that that have been blood, sweat, tears, right, producing all of these 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 national championships, et cetera. But literally, you're unrestricted. You can make as much millions as you want. You can sign as many deals as you want. You can do as many com- uh, 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 television commercials as you want. But somehow, the way the system is designed, right, is literally, guess what, athletes? It is what it is. So you need to be grateful. Now, coaches, as many millions as you want and the better talent that you can get and as much as you can, you know, uh, uh, with all the, the, the incentives and winning incentives and all these different things, we're going to celebrate you. We're going to give you money. If you're not performing, we're going to fire you. But guess what? There's still some type of buyout right, yeah. out, out of your contract. But these athletes are like, but, hey, your, your scholarship is renewable after every year. And you blow a knee, you hurt yourself, whatever the case may be. Ah. Uh, Yep, sorry for you. Uh, however, we retain the right to, uh, you know, not renew your scholarship um, and then give someone else your scholarship. But the coach is, is is still, you know, still in good standing, you know, as long as he hits or she hits these 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 certain benchmarks. Like, to me, that just makes no sense. Like, it, it makes no sense. And just to see how in this area, right, in, in this one area, right, 
no one, everyone just turns a blind a blind eye. And from an ethical and moral, and I think that's one thing I, I was laughing with my, you know, with, with my advisor about, like, is it, we're talking about ethics and moral, and we're talking about you know academic institutions of higher education and, and some type of moral fiber and trying to educate. But in this area, they like, look, it doesn't matter how many millions or whatever's happening. This is fair play. This is fair grind. And if all the other partner institutions are, you know, are, are uh, uh, on board, then, hey, who are we to try to, to stand up and say that this is an injustice? And I think that's unfortunately, you know, makes, you know, no sense. And it's just like so I know you talk about one day the market or something potentially always works itself out. But I feel like right now, the, the way that it looks and with so many people socialized to think that it's okay and it's permissible to do this, that, I, I mean, I don't know if I see this happening in the next decade, 20 years. I mean, unless there was some type of revolution around the athletes and athletes were just like, hey, we're not playing. I mean, I, mean, I, I don't disagree with you. I, I don't think that market forces are so strong that they can overcome uh, – entrenched societal biases and legal restrictions. So, you know, we have, I mean, and I'm not, this is going to maybe come out weird, but like there are laws against the sale of organs, body organs, right? And, and there are good reasons for that. And I don't think that there's any chance that there's going to develop a big flourishing market for organs. There's a little bit of a black market and there's all the urban legends about people waking up in a bathtub filled with ice. But generally speaking, that legal prohibition on the sale of kidneys, et cetera, it works. Now, it has consequences. It, it means that it's harder to get a kidney if you need one than it otherwise would be. And, and very, very strict market economists might argue that we would be better off with a market there, too. I understand the idea that it creates perverse incentives. It would create a system where extremely poor people might find themselves basically being organ farms. And, and so I get, I get why that happens. And, and we, you know, you can make the same... There, there, I have this, I don't know if this is a joke, but I, uh, I have this statement, which is there are like five areas where we as a society have decided that the market doesn't work. And so slavery, mm-hmm. sale of organs, yep. prostitution, college athletes, and tickets to concerts and events. And it's like three of these things are not like the other two. It's like, why do people think that somebody buying a, a, a concert ticket and reselling it is should be in the same category as those other things. And similarly, an athlete going out and, like, Harris Pestides is the president of University of South Carolina, and he said to the USA Today, without blushing, what we don't want to see is, is athletes having a bidding war, going to one school and saying, well, they're offering me this, what can you offer me? But I suspect when you were applying to grad school, you went through that exact same process. I know I did. Absolutely. Um, and, and I ended up, I don't know if it was smart or not, I, I ended up going to the school that offered me the most money. Um, <laughs> you know, I didn't finish, so maybe, maybe it would have been better off. But I was allowed to make my own mistakes and make my own decisions and to factor price in. And all of those people that you talked about who say, say, you know, I don't think it's fair, I have to go into debt to go to college, but these guys get to go at, you know, without any debt, et cetera. I guarantee you they sat down and figured out what was going what it was going to cost them and, and price factored into their choice too. So it, it's an odd thing that, that we carve out these couple of spots and, and say it's just it's just not right. I don't even know if I answered your question if you want to ask me again. But. Oh no, 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 you definitely did and which 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 uh, uh, 
uh, uh, made me just think about your myth number seven. The NCAA sells amateurism, and if we allow players to get paid, the popularity of the sport will decline. That, for me, literally while I was thinking of just, 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 just myth seven, you answered everything in the preceding paragraphs. And, like, that makes no sense. So, okay, well, you know, if, if we start paying Alabama and, and LSU we're going to pay their players, you know, $100,000 each. So when it comes time for the bowl championship, nobody's watching. Makes no sense to me. No logical sense right. whatsoever. Right. So, so, like, for all, you know, think about this for a second. We're, we're going to run a restaurant, and the restaurant's theme is that we have underpaid employees. And somehow, even though, you know, like, normally, like, people would be like, yeah, I don't want to go there. They don't pay their employees enough. But somehow – People are really into that. So first of all, it's really warped, right? right? Like, hey, yeah, let's go down to, to Andy and Mike's because they intentionally underpay their workers. Yeah, that's cool. Okay, so <laughs> um, the fact that we're catering to that audience is disturbing, but we're doing it, and it's, and it's successful. And one of our, our chefs says, you know, I'm a really good chef, and people really like my food, so I want more money or I'm going to go someplace else or whatever. And we say, no, our customers – won't like it because the reason they're paying to come here is because they want underpaid employees. And the guy says, well, tough, I'm going to leave. So we have a choice, right? We could pay him. And if we pay him, no one will come. Or we could just bring in somebody else and not pay that guy, and then people will still come. Well, what are we going to do as smart business people? We're going to take the cheaper guy because, one, he's cheaper, and, two, demand is higher if we don't pay than if we do. So we don't need any rule. If, there's, if there really is this perverse market out there for people to only go to underpaid restaurant employee restaurants, then it's self-enforcing. There's no sane business person that's going to say, I'm going to pay you more than I want to and also piss off my customers. The only reason that we pay, we pay people more than minimum wage is because we think they can add value. They can bring in more business. And so it's this crazy idea, oh, well, if you pay people, no one will come. Well, what would the market rate be? in a system where that were true, and the answer is zero. That's the only, the only answer you would get. And so, first of all, college athletes are paid. So they get paid in the scholarship, and they get nowadays, you know, they get paid a what's called the cost of attendance stipend. It's a, it's a say, $300, $400 a month. Well, that's pay. They get paid in, um, if, they, if they apply, they can get paid if they go from the student, uh, student assistance fund. They get paid if they go to a bowl game. They get paid if they go to a championship game. Their parents get paid if they make it to the Final Four. There's all these ways that athletes do get paid. No one seems to care. An example I like to give is when, when Terrell Pryor and the other guys at Ohio State sold their pants and got discounts on tattoos, the NCAA said that was pay. But they let them play in the Sugar Bowl. Well, that year the Sugar Bowl had a 25% increase in viewership from the previous Sugar Bowl Every other major bowl had a decrease in attendance, in, not attendance, in viewership. So did pe if people really don't think that pay and college sports go together and they won't watch, we should have seen the Sugar Bowls you know, stand out as a particularly poorly watched game. But it was Ohio State and Alabama, and people wanted to watch, and they did. So it just you know, it, it makes no sense in two levels. First of all, I don't know of a single market that anyone could point to where – in fact, there's proof that if you pay employees less, people will like it more. So that's the first part. It's just like this strange market that you're positing. But then 
to the extent to which somehow we have this unicorn that really exists, why you need to enforce a pay rule, why you think that absent the rule, smart schools run by savvy businessmen would start to pay makes no sense. It just doesn't make sense. My customers don't want me to pay you, so I will. Right, 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 right. So, Mr. Swartz, we have a couple, you know, with we'll, we'll my in-studio guests, I have a couple questions for you. Uh, I'm afraid that Dr. Cooper's going to stump me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hi, uh, Andy Schwartz. This is uh, Charles McCauley here. I'm a graduate student in sports management. I have aspirations of uh, go, um, completing my Ph.D. in uh, learning leadership and education policy here at the University of Connecticut. Uh, Dr. Cooper is also my supervisor and um, hopefully will be my Ph.D. supervisor as well. Um, and just so you know uh, where I'm coming from, a couple of roles I occupy is I, I'm a teaching assistant, so I currently I uh, teach in a intro to sport management class as well. I work in the athletic department in uh, academic men- as an academic mentor, so I work with the um, athletes who are academically most at risk. Just so. So, th- so I have a quick question for you before you start. <clears throat> cool. You're a student, right? Yes, sir. And you're also an employee of UConn. Yes. So you're you you're an employee and a student at the same time. I don't understand because <laughs> the NCA says that those are those are mutually exclusive categories. Yes, and, and you know uh, I've also been fortunate enough to make uh, some money off of my image and likeness throughout oh, my college you're, career you're, as well. So. You, you, the bursar is going to kick you out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, everything that a uh, graduate school doesn't want, actually. You know, um, someone who's been able to make money off of, of the work that I do. So. Uh, no, but just so yeah, I just wanted to give you that little introduction so you know where I'm sort of coming from with these next couple of questions. And uh, the first one is, uh, and I think you do address this in your article, but just so our, our listeners can know is, what about the other sports, right? Like, so, you know, it's wonderful to say and sit here and say, oh, well, football makes millions or if not billions of dollars. And, you know, the, look at how the tournament is raking in all this cash. But let's be honest. You know, we're heading into the NCAA tournament for soccer, both men's and women's, and how many people actually knew that? Right? They're right. not. They're not making the same amount. Of, they're not bringing in the same amount of money. So would we not just kind of kick them to the curb, and we would no longer have, uh, you know, we wouldn't have all these other wonderful college athletics that I think personally, and as well as I do know that um, you know other college students do like having these athletics as part of their campus culture. Sure. Okay. So, so I'm going to be super economic and also maybe a little Socratic here and say, like, well, why, why, why does UConn have soccer, right? UConn's actually a pretty big soccer power, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have two top 25 ranked teams at the moment. Uh, I shout out to our women's team who has not only, I think, two members who are on the under 24 women's national team, but also uh, we have a good chance of winning the American Athletic Conference this this upcoming weekend. So, shout out to them. Go Husky. So. Um, the, I guess the question would be, do you think it's the case that if UConn dropped football and basketball completely, but that they would also drop soccer? I'm not too sure how that follows. Well, if there's no football and no basketball, for whatever reason, mm-hmm. then there can't be any profits from football and basketball to pay for anything because it just doesn't exist. They're not even spending any money on it. Oh, so and, you're saying if they were to get rid of those, we would just be like essentially like punting the entire athletic department? I, I'm just asking whether you think that as a decision, the same way that, that UConn has a sports management program, they've decided without asking the football team to support sports management, they've decided to have a sports management program, and they've raised money through tuition and things like that, and maybe it's, maybe it's, one of the, it's actually typically a program that is self-funding, but 
But let's take the classics department because um, I like to pick on uh, my fellow humanities majors. I was a history major. Um, and, like, why, why, why does UConn have soccer now? Is the answer because there's football money left over? Oh, I mean, I think some people would argue. Here at UConn, obviously not, but in other areas, they are using football to fund those other sports. Well, right, but I mean, so, so I guess here's the thing. Like, I make money at my job, and sometimes I buy things that aren't particularly practical. Like, I don't know, uh, tickets to go to a sporting event, right? Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't do it if I didn't have money. Mm. But I'm not a business, and I'm not a, an institution of higher learning, and I also recognize that there's value to saving. So even when I decide to go to a football game, I am choosing to do that over a better use of the money mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or a different use of the money. I'm saying, yeah, okay, my retirement, my retirement, let's, uh, let's go watch the game. UConn is making the decision right now. It is taking money, and you could say it's from sports, although I don't actually think that the UConn football team makes money. <laughs> um, and it is putting it into soccer. Let's pick another sport, maybe that one that isn't as popular. Does, does UConn have a, a bowling team? No, but I would do. We do have a fairly large swim and dive team. Okay, so swim and dive. That's probably level. not a huge, uh, like fan interest sport. Yeah. Uh, there. Right, um, right. So why why do they do it? Well, I can tell you one of the reasons. One of the reasons they they do it is is um, that Title IX requires a certain kind of proportionality and. I think UConn is one of the many schools that has more undergraduate women than men, which means that in theory they need to have something like 50-50 or higher number of women proportionality, and they have to have funding. So there's, there's, there are certain reasons that if you have football, you're going to have a, something like a women's swim team. But if they have a men's team, too, that doesn't answer that question. Somebody on campus has decided that of all of the priorities and the hundreds of millions of dollars that are spent annually at UConn, Swimming is one of them. Like you said, sometimes uh, the student body thinks it's an enjoyable thing. Well, so anything that the student body thinks is an enjoyable thing is going to tend to get provided in a market because that makes this place a more compelling place to attend. And when someone's choosing between UConn and UMass or, or you know, uh, Central Connecticut or whatever, they're going to pick a school based on a variety of factors. And if you can get in two or three more people um, – based on having a, a swim team, that helps defray the cost. And, and that won't show up anywhere on the athletic department's books, but that's an economic benefit of having a swim team. Like, um, do you have any uh, classical music concerts on campus? Yes. I'm going to say yes. I'm not 100% sure, but, but I'm assuming so, yeah. Right. So I would suspect that if you ever have a famous classical musician come on campus, that the cost of bringing that musician on campus exceeded the ticket sales. I say this having also gone to a school where there was classical music and maybe gone to one or two events, and, like, I wouldn't have known anybody either. So, um, but you do it because the school thinks this is something that appeals to some people, and it makes us a vibrant college community. And we don't ask the football team to support that. Mm. So, So I guess what I'm getting at here is that one, there's no reason that, that um, the football players or at a school have to give up their pay 
to pay for all the other sports. So it's like a hundred percent tax on football players mm. so that nobody else has to pay for it. That's an accounting decision that the university makes to say we're only we're only gonna balance the bud- budget between these two programs. Two, if football went away or if the profits of football went down because the cost of acquiring talent went up and the school says, well, when the football players were paying for the swim team, we were cool with blowing their money on it. But now that we have to pay for it, we're not cool with it. I think that that says a really horrible thing, which is that um, we are willing to spend your money. Now, think about the think about the socioeconomics of the transfer of money from a football team to a swim team. Mm-hmm. Um, I suspect that if you counted the number of people on Pell Grants on the football team, it would be higher than the number of people with Pell Grants on on the swim team. And and I think most people know, but a Pell Grant is a federal grant. It requires you to have family income pretty much at around the poverty level in order to qualify for the money. So you have a group of people who come from a poor socioeconomic background, certainly poorer, and – you ask them, eh, you know what, you have a lot of earning potential, but you can't have it so that we can have these people who grew up wealthy enough to afford access to a high-quality swim program. So that probably means they were at a country club or in a private high school or in a public high school with a really nice pool and coach access to, to high school coaches and things like that in an obscure sport. Mm-hmm. We think that their scholarship – is worth more than your earning potential. So we're going to have this strange, regressive transfer of wealth. My attitude is is if a school wants swimming, great, pay for it. If a school wants football, great, pay for it, but don't pay for it in a capped market. Pay for it at a market rate. And if your argument is we're only going to have this sport if we can effectively um, extract money from other people and then spend it on something we don't even want, like the worst possible reason for having an, a tax, extracting money from a group of people, is to pay for something that you don't actually think is important. It's not important enough to pay for on your own. So that's a maybe a windy answer, but that's sort of my answer. No, no, so it's a great answer, and I think it really gets at it. And uh, I'm just going to go in there and say it. It's also, I mean, like racially, there are a lot of people have also maintained that. It, it, there's racial biases in this as well. So the fact, too, that you know, you're alluding to Pell Grant's is really, you know, like we just look at the composition of these teams. It's not, a, you know, uh, an uncommon thing to know that most football teams are about 70, 60 to 70% African-American males, where I'm pretty sure the UConn, not just to single out the UConn swim team here, is 100% white. It's yeah, like, I, I might pull up a picture while, while I'm, uh, yeah, <laughs> while we're talking. But, yeah, I mean, so the thing is, is that, like it or not, that poverty um, in this country is correlated with race. Mm-hmm. And so right. once you start talking about a group, a fundamental group of people that's the size of a football team, that's 85 scholarships. Yep. And it's a big enough number that almost certainly you're going to find that if it's a poorer group, it's also going to be a, a more heavily African-American yeah. group. And, and that, that, can have, that can have nothing to do with any form of overt racism. I don't want people to think that I'm accusing them all of being racist. Mm-hmm. It just, but, it, but it ends up being the case. That yeah. when you argue for a subsidy from the football team to the swim team, you are saying that people who are both black and poor should pay for the education of people who are middle class or upper class and white. Yeah, we don't say that normally in society. And we certainly don't say it without having a vote. 
Yes, definitely. Right, right. Absolutely, absolutely. Dr. Cooper, you want to ch yeah. uh, chime in? Hey, Andy, good afternoon. Dr. Hi. Cooper here. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. Great to, to, to hear you again and engaging you in some intellectual conversations. Glad. Thank you for um, taking the time out of your schedule to be on the show and, and obviously engage with the students. Um, you bring up some, some tremendous points. Uh, one of the things that I kind of wanted to ask you, we've talked about this before when we talked about the HBCU uh, role within this Power Five conference, and Charlie brought up the the overtone to me of race in, in the conversation, and and how it has to do with, and I'll be direct in 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 the exploitation of black bodies, which has been uh, tradition in this country uh, even before the creation of the country in terms of the establishment of the yeah. Constitution. But one of my questions for you is. Um, one, you know about the National College Players Rights Association um, and some of the things that they're calling for around health benefits and and Is that what coverage. Emmett Gill does? I'm sorry? Yeah, That's your Ramogi Huma. Oh, oh, the NCPA, yeah. Yeah, the I NCPA. Know very well. um, but also, I, I kind of want to build on the idea of we know internationally there's club systems and the way this sport is situated in the United States as it pertains to within institutions of higher education, is very unique. And we know that a part of the collusion, at least my contention in, in reading your work, is not just the NCAA working in autonomy, but also in concert with the NFL and the NBA. And so what are ways in which we can think of not only putting pressure on these entities to uh, alter their exploitation, uh, but also thinking about creative ways to provide these opportunities that would essentially uh, transform the dynamic of how sport operates in our society right now. So I'm thinking, you know, when you look internationally at these club systems that are not related directly, not saying that college sport wouldn't exist at all, but like you said, I mean, if there were opportunities for talented athletes across basketball and football to make market value without having to go out of the country to play in Europe or China for a year to make their money, um, what would that look like, and, and how could that be adopted here in the United States? Oh, golly. Well, so the thing is, I mean, you and I could get together tomorrow and we could start a, a football league, or a basketball league might be less expensive as a start, and it probably wouldn't do that well. And people would point to it and say, see, you got to be amateur, or, or, or you have to be the majors, you know, you have to be the NBA or else no one will watch. Look at the D-League. No one watches the D-League. Well, the D-League doesn't have horrible attendance. Minor League Baseball doesn't have horrible attendance, actually. It's just, you know, it's not as popular as the majors, and it's not as popular as college sports. But I think the, the problem is, is if you want to go up head-to-head -head against college football or college basketball, you are fighting 100 years of brand building. It would be very difficult to do, and you could do it. I think you would need to have very, very deep pockets to get the process started because for a few years you'd have to gobble up all the talent and um, effectively go into the living rooms where the coaches are saying we're going to give you a world-class education and say we're going to pay you $200,000. And um, when you're done, we're going to help you apply to college so that you can, when you're, when you're ready to learn and not, sort of like having to learn on the side while you're effectively being a minor league athlete, um, you know, part of this process is that we're going to groom you for college, but it'll start when you're 25, when you're done gun playing or whatever, 
35 if you're successful. Um, I think it's a tough, a tough process, though, and this would be what my antitrust economist friends, if I have any of those, would would call a barrier to entry. It's a, it's a, it's a reason why we've had the WFL and the the USFL and the XFL um, and you know even Arena Football League in its early days come in and not be able to to knock out the NFL is that it's tough to be the other league in a in our system with that when people want one one champion college sports has college football anyway has this wonderful thing baked into the line in the 1960s when the AFL which is the last successful sort of upstart league that came in and it was taking it was the AFL came in and the problem with the AFL for the NFL's point of view was that it was driving up player pay this was in the days before football had free agency they had something very much like the reserve clause in baseball where once you signed with a team they owned you for life pay did not go up very much over the course of a career football players had to work you know part-time jobs in the offseason etc and the AFL came in and all of a sudden pay started zooming up and um, this was making it less profitable so they merged and as a condition of that merger the government said, okay, but you have to agree never to play on Saturdays from the first Saturday in September until after the second Saturday in December. So if you're wondering why the NFL play starts playing Saturday games the second half of December, it's because they're not allowed to by law until afterwards. So college sports has a legal monopoly on Saturday. Wow. And um, obviously if we went and started a rival league, we could – go on Saturday. This thing stops us. It's, it's, it, it's baked into the law that it's basically the, as a condition of the NFL-AFL merger. Um, so, so we could compete on Saturday, but they are pretty entrenched. So um, I think it's possible, and you and I have talked about ways to do it, I think, that um, maybe someday will happen. But I think in the short run, it's difficult. What I don't want people to think, though, is that's because of amateurism. That has nothing to do with amateurism. That has tons to do with the you know the NFL is not amateur and yet there there are very few it would be very hard to break into the NFL too it has to do with network effects and how um, the, the 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 way in which a interdependent league system effectively boxes out other things there's you know there is competition in Europe in soccer but it's not within a country so so people Players can move from Britain to Spain to Germany, but teams within Britain, the number of teams in the, in the Premier League is limited, and they, and they have this very regulated system. If we wanted to start another British soccer system, it would be basically impossible, and that's the, the antithesis of amateurism. So, so it's tough. Um, I think, to get back to one of the things you said, though, the collusion with the NFL and the NBA, you know, there have been times when I think that was strong. I think during the the Maurice Claret case. Maurice Claret left Ohio State. He wanted to go into the draft early. He sued. He wanted the district court level saying that the agreement not to draft people before their junior after their until after their junior year was illegal. But then at the district court, they overturned it on on sort of antitrust labor grounds. They're, they're not, I can bore you all with that if you want. But but when they did that, the NCAA put in an amicus brief saying, please keep this rule because we need to keep talent in college at our prices 
And if we had to compete with the NFL, we would lose too much talent. So, so you can see the way, even if it's not an explicit collusion, that it's a, it's a, a conscious parallelism where they, they, work, they work together maybe without working together. But the thing is, is that especially in basketball right now, it's an age, it's a wonderful age where players, I think, are realizing the power that they have. And we see it maybe with some of the, the national anthem stuff. There were, th- there were things last year that went on when Donald Sterling went off and, and the Clippers basically said, look, get rid of him or we're not going to play. The NBA recognized it's a star-driven league, it's a player-driven league, and they, they changed. So I think right now if the NBPA, the Players Association for the National Basketball Association, wanted to get – NCAA basketball players paid, they could. And um, it could involve something as simple as going into the, the, you know, I hear that they're almost done with their, their next CBA, but going into the, 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 the league and saying, we want to beef up the D-League. We want to beef up the D-League so it competes with college sports. If they did that, things would change rapidly. Wow. Duke would not want to lose players to the Santa Cruz Warriors. Um, and they could change things in a heartbeat. And if if the NCAA had a problem with that, then the players' union could could work with the NBA and say, look, we are going to unionize your players. And you don't have to recognize their union. You can find find a, a cowardly National Labor Relations Board to say, oh, we're going to decline jurisdiction. But they'll go on strike anyway. And... We'll make sure that they're well provided for because we, the players' union, is not going to let the, the league blackball these guys for having been, you know, uppity when they were in college. And um, the moment that happens and the moment that the college players realize that, that, that their idols, the pros, have their back, I think the system would end. It's just that's a tough, another tough sell. And I've, I've sent Michelle Roberts letters, but they haven't been answered. <laughs> no, I, th- I think uh, the ideas are, are, as Michael stated earlier, just well thought out and insightful, and, and I think in due time will gain traction. Uh, my second shorter question, uh, I know we talked about this before, you know, kind of a cornerstone of my research and focus is on holistic development, uh, particularly for those individuals who participate in athletics. And I think a part of uh, of your idea is very insightful in the sense that it would help educate athletes at a younger age about how the market works, how capitalist markets work, um, and in that way it would empower them to make more informed decisions. I think, as you mentioned, a lot of people, a lot of athletes probably feel like they don't have many options. So it's this idea that, all right, I recognize that if I go to college or university, that, yeah, I'm not being paid market value, but this is just the pipeline. And I think Arian Foster kind of articulated that well in documentary schooled my question to you is with the economic uh, plans that 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 you've uh, proposed and set forth is there any uh, aspect of it that explicitly focuses on uh, in I guess holding institutions more accountable for the well-rounded education particularly of all athletes so you know one of the biggest findings that we're finding in the research is the time spent on athletics we also know that, you know, academic preparedness uh, oftentimes takes a second uh, a back seat 
to athletic performance. So if you got a talented athlete, regardless of their academic uh, background, we're going to bring them in and we're going to make keep them eligible to perform uh, on the court or on the field. Is there any way in addition to compensating? Because I think the compensation uh, will handle the economic exploitation, but I would argue that there's also uh, academic neglect and, and, and kind of uh, this idea of uh, that's tied into the exploitation. So is there a way in, in, in your thoughts as to where the education piece could also be uh, included in, in the economic empowerment? I, I, I do think so. I think that among the problems that are out there right now is the prohibition on athletes of having representation when they negotiate with their school for a scholarship. And some of the reason for that, pretty obvious, they don't, you know, the schools want to keep a power dynamic where they understand what's going on and, and the athlete is forced to rely on parents who may or may not have gone to college themselves. Um, you know, there's a, there's a power disparity there. But the other, one of the other reasons is there's not that much to negotiate about. Here's the deal. This is the most we're allowed to give you under the, the cartel. And, by the way, you have no say. You can't demand to major in pre-med if you want to. You'll get here and we'll find, you know, you know whatever. You'll have some control over your schedule, but we're going to shunt you into a, a negative system. In, in the world that I envision, where athletes have the ability to capitalize on the, the talent and skill that they bring to drive a hard bargain, and they're helped by people with financial savvy because no 17-year-old is going to really be in that in a, in a position where they know everything about about the world, maybe one where there is a, if not a union, something like a Ramogi's uh, NCPA out there providing sample contracts. Um, one of the things that I would hope would come about would be a demand for something like comp time. Even if you can't say, I want to guarantee that I won't practice more than X hours a semester or a week during the semester, because I'm not so sure that the elite athletes, that's something that they actually would want, which is to cut back on their training while they're in their prime, but something along the lines of, of demanding, you know, free choice of major, the, the ability to transfer at will if, that, if that's denied, things that really matter, and, and then also guaranteed um, post-eligibility education so that um, Mike talked about people hurting their leg and getting cut and not being able to finish, that, that effectively, even if you are washed up or finished with your eligibility, et cetera, or just turn out not to be as good as you thought, that, they, that the education is in essence guaranteed and that you can put into contractual terms that it's not just going to be a piece of paper that you get that says you graduated, but that it's actual access to the full educational experience, including the internships that, that non-athletes do, study abroad, um, you know, time to, to hang out at the coffee house and talk ideas with people, all the things that, the soft stuff that, that all of us are, have been or, or are grad students that we understand isn't easy to quantify it. You couldn't say, I'll put a number on it, but, but you know that it's an important part of becoming, you know, acquiring that sort of cultural capital and educational capital, um, that I would hope that there would develop a market where 
where those were awarded as part of the deal and that they were guaranteed by contract. So I could see one school saying, look, you know, we're not a particularly – I don't want to pick on any school, um, so let's make up one, you know, the, the, the University of, of Western Atlantic. And um, University of Western Atlantic is like, we're a commuter school, and we don't have much of a, a um, campus community – and so we just can't give you that same experience that, that you are going to get at Harvard, um, but we'll pay you more. And then Harvard comes in and says, uh, you know, sure, they're going to pay you more, but think about our, our alumni network and all these things we have, and we're going to guarantee you that you're going to be able to really immerse yourself in the Harvard experience, and it's not just going to be uh, a paper Harvard degree, and we're going to kick you out when you're done. And so in essence – since, generally speaking, it's going to be cheaper to provide those soft things because you're providing them for everybody else anyway, and it's, it's kind of a – it's almost a public good um, that there'll be self-selection. The people that really want that can get it. There's a problem, I think, which is that if you have a, a, a group of athletes who maybe haven't been exposed to those benefits, that somebody is going to need to play the role of sort of an educational market uh, – a marketplace educator – that's where I see a, an ultimate role for a group like Ramogi Humas, which is to help athletes know that there's value beyond the dollar without um, infantilizing them by denying them access to dollars too, without treating them like children, but to make everyone recognize that there, that there are multiple dimensions to what a college or university can provide in terms of value, and that total compensation is not just bottom line compensation. And I know if you come from a situation of real poverty and somebody says, well, you should value, you should value networking more than another $1,000 a month, and you're like, well, but I want to send $1,000 a month back home to my family. It's, it's fine for upper middle class Andy to, to say, oh, well, you should value that stuff. In a market, you might see that being driven out, that, that cash is going to drive out some of the soft value. But I think that if enough people who are advocates for the, the total player um, welfare in, in the broadest sense and not using player welfare as an excuse not to pay them come into the market that, that will end up with a rich offering and that schools will find it their advantage to tout those, those other benefits, the educational benefits, without also colluding on pay. Very long answer. I'm sorry. No, no. Thank you, Andy. That was very, very helpful. Uh, yeah, um, so almost to follow up on that, Andy, is um, so, again, like a lot of the, the pushback that I receive from when I bring this topic up uh, to my undergrads is that that they are no longer students then, and they're not really in the, on our campuses, they're not in our dorms, they're, they're not in our classrooms, and so they're, they're not student athletes. They're just athletes and they're employees, and there's no connection that we feel to them. So why would we... Uh, no, like that. It's not the same feel. Like we like college athletics more. Like we specifically like college football, college basketball more because there's that sort of uh, alumni connection. And sure, maybe they'll come and, and come back for their their education afterwards. But are they really? Is it the same thing? Um, and so, what what would your answer be to that? All right, but I think I missed something. Are they saying currently they don't feel there's a connection? Or they're saying no, if they, they got paid, if they were to get paid, but also to a- operate more as like a, that professional athlete, where their whole sole purpose and, 
all their actions would be just to focus on athletics. So yeah. they don't have to go to class. They right. don't have to live in the dorms. You know, they can do whatever they want Monday to Friday, barring that they are, you know, at, you know, they show up to meeting times, practice times, film times, whatever. They don't have to actually be part of the uh, campus community like yeah, no, they I, are now. I, I don't, okay, so I, can, I don't have evidence of this, but it is my firm belief that there is, in fact, market value the collegeness of college sports, by which I mean the fact that the athletes are in class with everybody else, that they that to the extent to which that a school isn't isn't sort of shirking on this, that they're real students. Yeah, I think that there is real value there, and because there's real value there, I think that in a market system you won't have um, that element driven out. So mm-hmm. when I say, as a college student, that I want to demand time when I'm done from my sport to go uh, overseas, I say that because right now almost no basketball player does study abroad Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because study abroad is either going to happen if you're in a semester school in the fall semester or the spring semester, Mm -hmm. and basketball is played in the fall semester and the spring semester. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if the students are saying they don't think that they would be real students when they're paid, I'm saying... They would be as real students as they are now, but that when they're done playing, then they could really get the rest of that experience. That they would have, so their their lifetime experience would actually be more UConn-y than it is now, and their their um, their short-term experience would be as immersed. I think that as an example, if you could have a system where two schools compete, and one could say, "We're going to pay you." But as a condition of being paid, you have to live in the dorms. Mm. And another school is saying you're an amateur and you can go live off campus with all your football buddies. I think that the first one is much more collegiate than the second. But under the NCAA's definition of amateur, the first one, you're a pro, even though you're living in the dorms. Mm. And the second one, you're a college student, even though you live entirely with football players off campus and you show up for whatever once in a while. So, um, you know, I think in the marketplace, athletes would rather get paid and as one of the conditions of pay live in the dorms and get that dorm experience too. And to the extent to which that colleginess is a, is a driver of demand, it makes the pot sport more popular, you get both. You get them on campus. I, I mean, you know, I went to Stanford. I know that's not a, 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 the, the most normal place. Mm-hmm. Um, we... You know, in in one of my dorms, one of the, the the guy who became the starting center on the basketball team was there, and we would play pickup with him, and it was kind of a joke because I'm five seven, yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, but you know, he was really a student, and he was there, and and it it, it was cool when we went to the games, and then there's Howard playing basketball, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so I I personally experienced that in a way that, you know, growing up as a Celtics fan, we went to games and it was Larry Bird, but it wasn't like there's Larry. Mm-hmm. Right, and so um, I think that that is a driver of demand, and I don't see why, just because the athletes are being paid, and in the question that Professor Cooper asked me, that what they're demanding more education as part of their of their compensation, real education. I don't see why a school would want to diminish the collegeness, and that's the thing that Mark Emmert says all the time. If you listen to Mark Emmert, and the word employee comes up, he goes, "I don't see." He says, if you're making employees, why bother to make them even come to class? Mm. And the answer is, like, 
If that's true, if you really think that making them go to class has no value to your product, then you shouldn't have the right to, 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 to not pay them. It's like if, if their collegeness, if being in college is what makes college sports different, then of course you would make them go to class, make them, ask them, let them, make but, a contract but make them in some sense required as part of a con- con- contractual agreement because you want to grow demand, because you want people to want your product. And so um, I think that those are um, – that's a false um, dichotomy that student and paid can't go together. That's why I joked when you asked me before, mm-hmm. how is it that you're able to be a student and get paid by – be an employee of your university? And I, I imagine that you, you know, get withholding tax on your, your paycheck and things like that. And – and it all it all works together because being a student and being paid are really I'll be super technical here and say they're orthogonal to each other. There's there's they're not related. Mm-hmm. And so you can have you can be an amateur and, and be a student. You can be an amateur and be not a student. You can be paid and be a student. You can be paid and not be a student and, and there's no there's no reason for it to be correlated. It's only it's only correlated because of the NCA rule. I'm going to ask one last question here, uh, is that, so, why haven't we seen this system struck down yet? Like, it, it, sitting here and listening to you, you speak, uh, bringing up all these other examples from across different industries, hasn't there been a case that has come up and the judges say, like, yes, this is, um, you know, you are limiting these individuals from uh, participating and competing in uh, free market, which seems to myself, very anti-Amer- uh, anti-American. So I'm just curious, yeah. like, how has this not been been struck down in the courts yet, or at least been through the court system forced to change? Yeah, so we got close. And when I say we, <laughs> I played a small role in the O'Bannon case. Uh-huh. Um, Ed O'Bannon challenged the system. Originally, he really wasn't challenging it in quite the fundamental way that it became. He was in some ways, nibbling at the edges. And the NCAA went so scorched earth on him that he ultimately said, like, well, if I'm going to have to fight the full battle anyway, I might as well fight the full battle for the full enchilada. And um, he went to the court and succeeded in proving that the NCAA rules on scholarships were a form of price fixing that was anti-competitive and violated the antitrust laws. So, yay, and the ni- it went up to the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit affirmed that portion of the decision. And the Supreme Court recently chose not to take the NCA's appeal. So it is the law of the land right now, at least the law of the Ninth Circuit, and unrefuted uh, by the Supreme Court, that the cap on scholarships that existed prior to 2015-16, when they changed the rules a little bit, was an illegal price-fixing cartel. But, and this is the, the sad but of the whole discussion, the court was very conservative in its offered remedy. It said, look, there's zero reason why you could possibly agree to fix prices below the full cost of attendance, because the the old full ride that people got didn't cover all the cost of attending college. It It was intentionally capped, knowingly capped, at less than what the government says the full cost of going to University of Connecticut is. If you filled out a financial aid form, the FAFSA, 
They come back to you and they tell you what your cost of attendance or COA is going to be, and it consists of six major categories. It's tuition and fees. That's one category. Room, board, books, living expenses, and travel expenses. And the NCA rules until about two years ago said that you could have tuition, fees, room and board, and required books, but not the rest of your books and not your living expenses and not your travel expenses. And so that was struck down and perhaps not <laughs> coincidentally. The NCA also changed their rules before that injunction saying they had to went into effect, but the rule has been changed, and if they wanted to go back, they couldn't because there's a, an injunction against it, a court prohibition on the old scholarship cap. So that was a small win. The court also said that the evidence at trial was that small amounts of money paid on a deferred basis when the athlete either finished his or her eligibility, well, was, in the case of O'Bannon, it was just his, there weren't any women's sports, um, his eligibility or graduation, that that was okay, too, and that, that whatever cap the schools chose to put on, it couldn't be less than $5,000. So effectively, since we know that they wouldn't cap it at anything more than they had to, they wouldn't make the cap any higher. By saying they couldn't cap it below 5000 she effectively set the cap at 5000 The Ninth Circuit struck that down. They said that there was... Um, well, they said that all of the evidence that was in favor of that decision was unpersuasive, and then they said, okay, there's no evidence in favor of it, but we just think so. And the paper I talked about that I submitted today is about that, how the court effectively made up facts to justify what it knew, and I'm using the word new in quotes here, to be true. And this is, this is a quote that is actually an actual quote. They said, not paying them is precisely what makes them amateurs. And while that is true, that has nothing to do with the antitrust law and the dissent, to the dissent's credit. So it was a three-judge panel, two judges in favor of removing this $5,000, one judge who said the evidence, you know, says the $5,000 will be fine. That judge, who is also the chief judge of the Ninth Circuit, said, um, you know, our job on the court is not to protect amateurism. Our job on the court is to protect competition. And there was no evidence saying that competition will be harmed by this. And there was lots of evidence that saying competition will be enhanced. And you guys are crazy. And the, the majority just said, no. <laughs> and they even said, look, look at some of this evidence. The, the plaintiffs pointed to the success of the Olympics after amateurism was dropped. And we had. My, my, my business partner, my colleague Dan Rasher, had testified about this. And they said, but, um, but the Olympics were never really about amateurism, were they? And it's like there's no site, there's no footnote to that, there's no citation. I can show you uh, probably five dozen, you know, at least 50 people, maybe more, who, have, who were stripped of their Olympic medals because it was found out that they weren't pure amateurs. Going back to Jim Thorpe in 1912 um, and all the way through 1984, Ingemar Stengmark was a, a skier, and he had his medal stripped because he took um, skis from a skiing company. And um, in 1986, the Olympics dropped the amateurism requirement on, uh, as an, at a 
Olympic level and let each sport decide for itself. And one by one, we all know in 92, the basketball, FIBA, the, the International Basketball Association, gave it up. And the Olympics have remained popular ever since. And the TV rights go up and up and up. And as economists, when we want to measure popularity, we look at dollars. And um, that was all just discarded and disregarded by the court as, yeah, whatever. We know that this is important. And so um, until, until we can find a way to insist that the courts, um, you know, get over their biases, that they, they, they came into this decision with a, with a feeling that amateurism mattered and effectively just overrode the, you know, we, went, we, we had five years with the judge in O'Bannon, Judge Wilkin, Claudia Wilkin. She's a judge out here. She's now on senior status, but, but she's been a judge uh, in the Ninth Circuit, Northern District of the Ninth Circuit for a long time. We had five years from when the case was filed till we went to trial, and she had enough time to get over whatever she thought she knew about the NCAA and to learn it for real. Mm-hmm. We had, I don't know, a couple months in, a, in an afternoon in oral argument with the Ninth Circuit judges, and one of the judges said, well, I don't really know much about this case, but I just stayed at a Holiday Inn Express. And, um, no, he actually said, I just flew in from Michigan, and on the plane I read an article in the New York Times, so that's what I know. And so... I feel like whenever we're dealing with like that woman that I walked walked next to on my way to lunch that time, and she says um, they can't get paid, they're amateurs. Whenever we're dealing with what people already know because they live in a society that has talked this amateurism myth forever, that we don't have a chance in court, and that the only way we have a chance in court is if we can force the, the, the finders of fact and the deciders of law to really dig in. Um, and if you're going to say that amateurism is the law of the land, then, then make, you know, the burden of proof for that shouldn't be on the plaintiffs to disprove it at some level. The burden of proof, and I can go into the details of that, but you don't want to hear it, should be on the, the defendants to, to prove up with evidence not just a survey saying people don't want amateurism. Because if you tell me with the survey that people don't want amateurism, I go, great, you won't give it to them. I mean, don't, don't want paid college players. Great, then the market won't, won't result in that because the market won't end up on a spot that nobody wants. Um, but to prove that, in fact, it needs – the system needs to exist with collusion for it to exist, which is what the standard in the law is when you're going to ask effectively to be exempted from laws against price fixing. Um, until the court demands the level of rigor that they demand in other cases for this, it's going to be tough. Mm -hmm. It's going to be tough. Wow, wow. Man, Mr. Swartz, I definitely appreciate you. We could go on and on and on about this. I know you're a very busy person. I appreciate the extent of you talking with me, Dr. Cooper and Charlie here. And, uh, but uh, to, to the listeners out there, I told you it was definitely going to be a good one. I'm definitely going to be sharing not only the audio of this, but also, you know, the uh, the articles and, and some of the other articles uh, from Mr. Swartz. And just just about just to get you to thinking and it's not for you to make a decision on it. But to, the, the whole goal of this was just for you to be educated in a sense that I was educated. And I just feel once, you know, you make observation, you have obligation to share the information and just challenge individuals to just think, hmm. 
what are these athletes really worth? And especially to the athletes, you know, who, who are possibly listening, you know what I mean, to know your value and to also know, you know, that, that there are options that you could potentially pursue, you know, or you can be the change that you wish to see and, and, and start this revolution. Because that's what I'm thinking about, Mr. Swartz. I don't know. Hopefully I hit one of these mega lotteries and, and listen, yeah. I'll bankroll the All whole. All right, I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. I'm serious. So uh, you'll that... be like, "What? I never said that." Um, <laughs> um, well, so here's here's the thing. First of all, I apologize for being so long. We did thank you for giving me the the chance to just sort of say what's on my mind. Absolutely. I appreciate an audience. Um, for anybody who's out there and you're like, I just don't think these guys are worth that much. Ask yourself why the NCA has gone to court over and over and over again for the right to pick a fixed price. And if your answer is, well, of course, if they could get paid more, they would get paid more, then what you're saying is that they are worth it. Unless you don't believe in capitalism, and maybe you don't, but I suspect that anybody out there who's ever asked their boss for a raise um, is not as socialist as they think they are. So um, we'll see. Facts, facts, facts. Well, Mr. Suarez, I definitely appreciate you uh, uh, for calling in. I know Dr. Cooper and Charlie echoed those sentiments. And uh, to the listeners, I, I told you it was going to be a good one. And uh, to your friends out there, still wait wait till we share the audio on this. And you can send this to the whole family. It could be a nice Thanksgiving listen session or whatever it is. And uh, Mr. Suarez, definitely will be talking with you soon, sir. I appreciate it. And for the Motivational Jumpstart for this special edition, I am Mike Mallory. And on the phone from the West Coast, an incredible economist. Uh, and now friend to the show, Mr. Andy Swartz. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. All right, Bye-bye. take care.